And turn with me to the epistle of 1 John in the New Testament near the very end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 1. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. We can supply one for you. And there's a note page in your bulletin, and if you'll grab that as well. And just to jump right in, let's just say that you were talking with someone at school or at work, maybe across the fence, perhaps uh, you're engaging somebody at the post office. And just tell me if you can relate to this. The person that you're speaking with happens to say in passing that they are a Christian or that they go to such and such a church. And in that moment, you are genuinely caught off guard by them sharing that. And the reason why is because you know this person. And you know them in more than just a passing, hi, how are you kind of a way. And you never would have suspected that they were a Christian. Their speech, their attitudes, and the, the values that they condemned and affirmed, the way they treat others that don't agree with them, the activities they participate in, and the things that they're doing collide on a number of fronts with what you know the Bible says about those who are really following Jesus. And so the question immediately leaps into your thinking, how does this work? They say they are a Christian, and yet their life seems to be such a contradiction to that claim. How does this work? How do we know if someone is really a Christian? How can you be sure that you are really a Christian? That you're the real deal, that you're the authentic follower of Jesus? Is it what you say that decides that? Is it talk that matters most or does my life and how I live have something to do with the claim that I'm a follower of Jesus does my walk matter yeah <laughs> see this is what the apostle John uh, takes up with us this morning in first John chapter 1 verses 5 6 and 7 which is this the section that comes into view for us this morning in a brand new study series that we kicked off last Sunday morning called Being Real Christians in an Unreal World. By way of just the most brief recap, in case you were not able to be with us last week, and just as a refresher for those who were, John, one of Jesus' closest and dearest disciples, is now an old man in his 80s, but still passionately serving his Savior as he pastors the church in Ephesus in first century Asia Minor. The year is about 95 AD, so right at the close of the first century. An extremely dangerous new false teaching has begun to take root in Asia Minor, and the name of that teaching is Gnosticism. You've heard the term, perhaps. The promoters of this new teaching claimed to have a higher or a deeper knowledge from God, an inside track into true faith. There, there were three main distinguishing features of this, this new, higher way to God. And first and most dangerous was the teaching that stripped Jesus' humanity from his deity, saying that he really wasn't the God-man who came from heaven to save sinners. And, of course, we know that collides head-on with uh, the biblical truth about salvation. If Jesus is not sinless God and at the same time fully human like you and me, he can't stand in our place and pay our sin debt, right? We talked about that last time. 
Second, they taught that all sin resided in the realm of the material, the realm of matter, things you could see and touch. And since people are spiritual beings, essentially held prisoner in a material body, you can really do anything that you want in your body, live any way that you want to. God only cares about your spirit. And so, in essence, Gnostic teaching gave you a free pass to sin. You could just live any way you wanted to. That was certainly an appealing message to the fallen sinful nature that resides in in everybody. That worked if you wanted to live just for yourself. So many were attracted to Gnostic thoughts. Third, this brand new false teaching fostered an exclusive, isolating air amongst the Gnostics that was devoid of tenderness. It did not hold within its message compassion or love for anyone who did not agree with what the Gnostics were teaching. But Jesus had said that love for God and love for others would be a distinguishing mark of a real Christian. And so by the late first century, this false teaching is now worming its way into the churches of Asia Minor, which are under John's care and confusing and deceiving these Christians and drawing a number of them away to this new false way of thinking, away from from true biblical Christian faith. And so John writes his letter, Holy Spirit inspired, so that the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century would always have a way, a place to go and learn about how do you tell the fake from the real. With a constantly circulating kind of a style where, where he would repeat the same truth over and over and over, John will confront these three biblical or these three heretical areas over and over and over in the course of his five chapters in this letter. He will do that with sound doctrine about the person of Jesus and about the person of God. And then with uh, numerous appeals to right behavior that reflect the heart of God, he he will circle around and talk about that and share that with us as being a critical part of being a real follower of Jesus. And then repeatedly he will call for authentic love. from those who who really love the Lord Jesus. So true Christians, they believe, they behave, and they love in very distinct ways. And when they do, they leave no doubts about whether or not they are the real deal or not. And so as we saw last time, John wastes no time at all confronting the false doctrine of these Gnostic teachers as he opens his letter with a beautiful presentation of the true Jesus. Let me read this for us, and you follow along in your Bible. Verse 1. And he doesn't even introduce himself. He just steps right in. He just goes straight for, for the issues that are important. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Man. In four verses, John, as a personal eyewitness, tells us who Jesus really is. He's eternal God. He's he's God incarnate. He's the heart of true salvation. He is eternal life. And he is ultimate joy. 
And we say amen to that. Real Christians believe this. In fact, last Sunday morning, I asked us corporately, do we believe this? And you shouted back, yes, we believe these things. Real Christians believe these things. But John barely catches his breath as he then says this in verse 5, 6, and 7. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. We just sang about the light, didn't we? John talks to us about that. Once again, as, as he does in the opening verses, John flashes his personal eyewitness to Jesus card to his readers. He says, hey, man, I'm not just cooking this stuff up like those heretical false teachers are trying to do. This is the message we have heard from him. From who? From Jesus himself and That's the message we proclaim to you, the message that comes straight from Jesus. After extolling Jesus' nature and character in the opening, John wants to make a doctrinal statement about the nature and the character of God the Father before he goes any further. And since Jesus, as God in human flesh, is the first, best, and most perfect source of any revelation about God the Father, John says, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. On the night before Jesus went to the cross for us, this same John, uh, who was writing this letter, was with Jesus in the upper room. And, and in his gospel, which John wrote about 10 years before he writes First John, in his gospel in chapter 14, John, as an eyewitness in that moment, shares an exchange that Jesus has with with his disciples, and in particular with Philip, one of the twelve. Jesus had told the disciples earlier in the evening that he was going to be going away, and and that just sends them into a a kind of a fear-filled, desperate tailspin. And So much so that Philip, in chapter 14 of John, verse 8, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Just show us God, and we'll get through this moment. It's so honest. So human, right? Just show us God, and that'll be good. Jesus said to him, and I imagine Jesus said this with, a, with, with kind of a pained expression on his face. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Who better than Jesus for John to appeal to for any insight into the nature or the character of God the Father? God is light, Jesus says, And in him is no darkness at all. John got that from Jesus. So he begins where all theology begins, with with really who God is, in his nature, in his essence, in his character. 
And he describes God for us as light. We'll want to get used to this word because this metaphorical use of light is a common go-to image for John. He loves this word as well as its opposite, darkness. Where light is, darkness cannot exist. Agreed? Where there is darkness, light is not. They are mutually exclusive in a way that anyone who has tried to find their way through the house at night fully understands. I once heard a description of the human shin bone, a device used for finding furniture in the dark. (laughs) You know, even little kids, they know the difference between light and darkness from a very early age. They know that those are mutually exclusive ideas, light and darkness. Lots of kids are scared of the dark, but they are comforted by the light. I have yet to hear a small child cry out, Mommy, Daddy, I'm scared of the light. Turn off the lights. But you hear them say often, Oh, turn on the lights. I'm scared of the dark. Light and darkness, they are complete opposites. They are mutually exclusive. So in what way, then, is John saying that God is light here in this verse? Light is, after all, a prevalent theme in the Bible. We see it many, many times. If you glance at your note page, here are just a a few ways that this word is used. Of course, it can refer to physical light, energy. God says in Genesis 1-3, let there be what? Let there be light. And there was light, just like we know of it right now. Light can also um, be a metaphor for salvation, as David uses it in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and salvation. He equates salvation with light in a metaphorical kind of a way. It can refer to, to, to spiritual life as we find it sourced in the person of Jesus. When Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in, walk in darkness, but will have the what? The light of life. Yeah. The light that is sourced in me. Spiritual life is found in me alone. I am the light, Jesus says. And then a fourth way the Bible uses the word light there on your note page is as a metaphor for ethical or moral purity. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Paul uses this word this way on the screen. For at one time we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so here Paul equates light with whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is true. We could say with whatever is not of sin, right? Is this fourth use that John employs here in verse 5? God is light. John is saying that Jesus himself told him that God is absolute moral, ethical purity, complete and utter holiness, sinless perfection. There is no dark side to God. He is completely holy. He is perfectly perfect. Interestingly, John does not here declare that God is love, although he will do that in chapter 4. He doesn't say that God is all-powerful here, omnipotent, although we know God is that as well. The Holy Spirit says through John, this is the first thing he wants to address, that God is light. And by saying that, he's affirming God's perfect perfection. What the angels in heaven in Isaiah 6 describe as the holy, holy Holy, 
Lord God Almighty part of his person. Holy, holy, holy. God is light. You know, in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are so pure, so, so holy, so light that he cannot look on sin. 1 Timothy 5.16, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. We say, amen and amen. The same truth is declared about Jesus. In Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? He's without sin. He's holy. He is light. The true nature of God is certainly not lost on the Old Testament psalmist when he writes in Psalm 96.9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship the Lord in the light of his holiness and tremble before him. It was A.W. Tozier, a name that some of you I know are familiar with, who said this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Very interesting statement, isn't it? Do you think it's true? What we think, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing. Thing about us. What is the first thing, brother, sister, that pops into your thoughts when you hear God's name? What's the first thing? Because Tozer's right. That's going to reveal a great deal about us as persons. John doesn't start with the prevailing culture and what it might wish God was like, but with a declaration of what God is like. Holy. Holy, holy, true, sinless, perfect, righteousness, goodness. He is light. Sinless angels in heaven, in Isaiah 6, they hide their faces before this God. Unable to look on his perfect perfection. So what is the first thing that comes to our minds when we hear God's name? Is it the brilliance? Is it the splendor of his holiness? John says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He begins with what Jesus told him about what God is like. Absolute moral purity. We might ask the question, but why is it so important to John to make this declaration right here at the very beginning of his letter? Why does he do that? And the answer is because John is, in effect, calling out those Gnostic false teachers who are saying that sin, evil, darkness is not a big deal to God and you can live however you want and and God and you can be tight. If God is intrinsic, infinite holiness, perfect perfection, in whom is no particle of darkness then this means that anyone who is living darkly as a pattern of life can make no legitimate claim to being in fellowship with or in relationship with God. Do you follow the argument? It's a very serious statement. Verse 6. 
John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we what? We lie and we do not practice the truth. Immediately we notice that John introduces us into another metaphor, the the word walk. This word is obviously not referring to literal walking as you put one foot in front of another. This is a favorite word of the Holy Spirit that refers to someone's manner of life, their their, their pattern of living. We would would say it's a word that simply means lifestyle. It's the moral and spiritual character of my life. To walk refers to the general pattern of how I do my life, my spiritual life, my daily life. The word walk is in the present tense here in verse 6, meaning to continually keep on walking. And so John's talking about doing life from day to day. If someone were to say that they are in a faith relationship with God, in fellowship with God, and you remember last time we talked about this word fellowship, it means to share in common. So if someone is going to say, I'm in fellowship with God, what they're saying is that God and I share Jesus If someone's going to say that, and yet this person continually walks in dark places, in falsehood and in sin, pursuing things that are the very opposite of God's heart, the very opposite of what is his light, John says you can know that that person is not the real deal. They're not a real Christian. They are lying. They are lying to themselves. They are lying to others. And they are lying to God. Though many try, it is not possible to have fellowship with God with one foot in darkness and one foot in light, since God is only light. A lifestyle of dark living trumps any claim to be in fellowship with God. One night, John was with Jesus when a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus came to him secretly And John and the other disciples, they get to hear this conversation that goes on between Jesus and Nicodemus. And John writes the conversation down for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And at one point, Jesus says in this conversation some words that are very familiar to you and me, beginning in verse 16 of John 3. Many of you have memorized some of these words. For God so loved the world, Jesus says to Nicodemus, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus wants to know who Jesus is and why he's come. Well, Jesus tells him. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. We're we're very familiar with those words, perhaps a little less so with the next words that Jesus speaks. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Who's that? That's Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is is Jesus saying to, to Nicodemus? He's saying that the light of God's moral beauty, his holy perfection, exposes the heart and calls for change. So that it wants to to no longer live in the shadows, but to live in the light of 
of the holiness of God. Well, I've got a, a, a vivid, real-life illustration of this. Just the other day, how, how, how light exposes what's in the dark. Many weeks ago, I had thrown an old rubber entryway mat out on the dirt beside our house with the intentions of, of eventually taking it to the dump. So it's laid out there for a number of weeks. <laughs> I'm going to get to it. So I go to pull up this mat the other day, and the moment that I did, brothers and sisters, it was like the ground under that mat just kind of came alive with all of these squirming, creepy, crawly bugs. I mean, it it was amazing. Worms and centipedes and beetles and something I had never seen before was underneath that mat. And it was all moving, and it was like something out of a horror movie. And I I just dropped the mat right away. It was, you know. Everything was great for all of those critters until I lifted the mat and I exposed them to what? The The light. Then there was this mad dash by all of these creatures to try and run for cover anywhere that they could find darkness, right? The sinful heart reacts the same way in the light of God, which is what Jesus is talking about. The first thing Adam and Eve did, ah, the first thing Adam and Eve did after their rebellion in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 Do you remember what it was? They ran for cover. They tried to hide themselves from God. To hide, to find a shadow, a crevice, a dark place where their now sin-infected nature could be concealed. That was their very first reaction. They knew instinctively that to come to God was to step into His light and to be exposed for what they, they, they really were right now, which was filled with sin and rebellion. So John here in verse 6 points out the immoral disconnect that is going on for someone who claims to have fellowship with God, but who, who, who in themselves lives, walks in darkness. There's an illogical contradiction between the words they say they are in fellowship. Did you catch that? They say they're in fellowship, but there's this illogical contradiction between the words and the actions in one's life, between the walk and the talk. And so these Gnostic false teachers and their followers were saying, you could be a Christian without any change in your life. Just come, believe, have fellowship with God, live like you've always lived. God's good with that. God's good with you. Boy, John doesn't sugarcoat his words. What does he call anybody who is saying that or living like that? What does he call them? Yeah. But if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. False converts, fakes, Christians in name only. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Now, is this just a first century issue? (laughs) You, You chuckle. This is a 21st century issue for sure. Did you know that according to a recent Pew report on religion in American culture, 80% of the U.S. population, that's 330 million plus, 80% of the American population would call themselves a Christian today. 
And yet, according to the data that I shared with you last time from the Barna research team, when all the numbers get crunched, the professing Christian culture in America thinks and behaves no differently from those who make no faith claim at all. And when I shared that with you last time, we all collectively winced, and I believe Alan said, ouch, for all of us. That hurts to hear that. We're grieved by that, realizing that this makes the message of 1 John even more timely and relevant. What makes a real Christian in this unreal world? Well, clearly John would say that Christian talk that does not walk doesn't work, right? It's just a lie. It's a big turnoff to people, and and they don't want to hear what you have to say. But then he would quickly say this. On the other hand, real faith really walks, and it makes a difference. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We do say amen to that, yeah? Here John introduces three proofs, three evidences, if you will, for real faith in Jesus Christ. And these he will take up and develop more as he leads us deeper and deeper into the letter. Remember I told you he comes and he just hits on these three things over and over and over. And he'll develop those. So we don't have to develop them a great deal here, but I do want to introduce us to them. Three proofs for real faith. Right now, any of us can look at our own lives and see if these things are there. That will help us know where we are with God and with the Lord Jesus. Number one, and this is on your note page, are we living a life continually oriented towards God and his will? Ask yourself that. Am I living my, my life continually oriented towards God, the light? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, are we walking in the light? That's a fair question, isn't it? Anybody ought to be able to ask us that. Does the direction of my life reflect a continual, consistent focus and desire for the Lord and for what he desires? I walk in the light when I live consistent with his light. Again, this is what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5, that passage I Share with us a moment ago. Let's go there one more time. For at one time we were what? Hey, we were darkness. Not anymore. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Does that reflect your life right now? Is that how you're doing life with your God? We know that the Holy Spirit's calling uh, here for you and I to be real, to be real in the way that we pursue obedience to the Lord. It's doing what I do for God and unto the Lord. For glory, for his glory, for his good name. First Corinthians 1031 puts it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for, for the glory of God. Is that you? Brother, sister, is that me? Now, John balances this with the fact that we are still sinners and our sin nature is going to be with us till the day we die. So we're not talking here about being perfect people, right? 
God's not calling for perfection here. Heaven is not for perfect people. What is heaven for? Heaven, heaven's for imperfect people made perfect through faith in the perfect Jesus. Right? That's who heaven is for. That said, though, we walk, the walk of a real Christian will increasingly reflect more and more and more of God's light and less and less of sin's darkness. Our lives change. Our desires change. God is in us by his spirit. And rather than walking toward darkness, we are walking toward the light. Not perfectly, but that's the goal. Does that describe you? Does it describe me? Second proof of real faith is found in the next part of the verse. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with what? With each other. And so John now is going to move us in the direction of authentic loving. Are we authentically loving in our relationships with other people? That's a reliable evidence of whether or not Jesus is really in my life. Fellowship with one another. Now, at first blush, we might be surprised by what John says here, that that, that the Holy Spirit would make this connection. We might be expecting John to say that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. And that is true, right? That is true. But John is going to go horizontal here. One result of exposing ourselves to the beauty of of, of God's moral and ethical light is that we become a reflection of his holy, loving character. And if God is holy and loving and we're a reflection of of that, what are we going to be? Holy and loving. Loving God, loving each other. John got this truth from Jesus, straight from Jesus. On the night again before the cross, as Jesus was with his disciples, he says this, to them, John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give you, that you what? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. They're going to know that you're the real deal. How? If you have love for one another. John gets it from Jesus. Jesus, in effect, says that a validating proof that a person is a real follower of himself is that they're going to love others in their faith community and outside of their faith community in very practical ways. And those outside the faith community are going to know there's something different about this person because they love. John says that's part of being the real deal. First John 3.14, he will say this. We know that we've passed out of death and into life. We know because we what? Love the brothers. We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So real Christians, he says, in one verse, live a life continually oriented towards God, and and, and they love authentically. And then lastly, he says, there is a constant reliance upon the cross of Jesus in someone who really is loving Jesus. Constant reliance upon his cross. One more time. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Oh, yes. Amen. Amen. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We shout, Amen. What a glorious truth. 
How do we continue walking in light over the course of our lives? Is it by absolute moral perfection? No. There's no one like that except Jesus. We stay in the light by the ongoing moral cleansing of our sin and guilt by the atoning merits of Jesus and His cross. That verb cleanses there in verse 7 doesn't mean one time. John chooses a verb tense here that means continual cleansing. The blood of Jesus continues to morally scrub my life clean. He'll describe this more fully in the letter. Verse 9, with confession, forgiveness, we're, we're scrubbed clean. When we believe we're saved and we're declared righteous, but our lives continue to struggle with sin. I'm telling you anything you don't know. What keeps us from walking back into the darkness? What keeps us in the light is a constant clinging to the cross of Jesus, right? There's where our repentance, there's where our cleansing happens every single day. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Don't you love that little word? Aren't you glad it's there? John's telling us that there's no limit to the cleansing power of Jesus. Do you hear that? There is no limit. Even the most vile, corrupt sinner can know a real relationship with a holy, holy, holy God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through faith in his work upon the cross. No one is so deep in darkness that Jesus' blood cannot cleanse. No one carries a weight of sin so great or so black that the Savior cannot remove it. The precious blood of Jesus' atoning death not only washes away all of our past and our present sin, but it keeps on cleansing us until we see Jesus face to face. That's what all means. Is that what you believe? Stories told of an elderly Christian woman who made it her practice to carry a very small little book with her that she often took out of her purse to show to people at any opportunity. She called it her biography. It only had three pages in her biography, and there wasn't a single word written on any of the pages. And yet she said it contained her entire life story. The first page was black. She said this was her life before she learned about Jesus. This was her condition by nature, lost in the darkness of sin. The second page was red, representing the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross for her life, for her sin. The third page was white. The final page stood for how God saw her now through her faith in Jesus. And that's how she saw herself as well. Washed in the cleansing blood of Jesus, made whiter than snow by the blood of Jesus. Real Christians, they live a life continually oriented towards God and His will. They want the light. They love authentically in relationship within their faith community and outside of it. And for them, there is a constant reliance upon the cross of Jesus. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Are we the real deal? Friends, we all have the same first page in the biography. The sin-dark, sin-blackened page. The second and third pages. Well, those are added when we invite Jesus in. 
to our lives through simple saving faith. Yes? Yeah. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we've gone long this morning. But we've gone long for the most beautiful reason. The person of Jesus and what it means to be in real, real relationship with him. As we wrap it up here this morning, brothers and sisters and friends who have come today, how many pages do you have in your spiritual biography? Do you just have the one page? The black page? Or do you have those other two pages as well, the red page and the white page? Have you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Have you been made white as snow, clean before a holy God because of what Jesus has done for you? If you have yet to answer that question, I just invite you to linger a little bit, find one of us, or maybe a friend you know, come up to the front, grab me or whatever, and let's, let's talk about what it means to have all three pages, the black, but then the red and the white. Lord, this is the truth we carry into the world that we live in. We want to be real, real Christians as we step out of these doors and into our community. May the world know who we follow and love. For your glory we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.